Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, September 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Iran releases five American prisoners in a major hostage swap. Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso ink a controversial security pact in West Africa. The G77 calls for a new geopolitical order centering on the needs of the global south. Ukraine claims the recapture of another key village near Bakhmut. President Erdogan alludes to Turkey parting ways with EU's ascension process. U.S. House Republicans finalize a short-term budget deal as a shutdown looms. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. pleads for Secret Service protection following a security incident. Texas GOP Attorney General Ken Paxton is acquitted on corruption charges. Antarctic sea ice reportedly surpasses a 36-year low. And a cyber attack on Clorox disrupts the company's supply chain. In our top story, Iran releases five Americans in a prisoner exchange deal. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Daily Wire, and Daily Mail. Five Americans jailed for years in Iran have been released and made their way to the Qatari capital of Doha on Monday after a deal with the U.S., which included the release of $6 billion in Iranian funds held in South Korea, was agreed upon. The American-Iranian dual citizens released are Sia Maknamazi, 51, Imad Sharki, 59, Morad Tabaz, 67, and two others who were not named. In addition to the unfreezing of Iranian funds, the U.S. also released five Iranians held by the U.S. Of the five Iranians released, two are expected to return to Iran. Two decided to stay in the U.S., and one decided to travel to a third country. The Americans held by Iran are expected to soon fly from Doha to the U.S. The release of funds was conditioned on them being used for, quote, humanitarian purposes. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi said that, quote, humanitarian means whatever the Iranian people needs. So this money will be budgeted for those needs, and the needs of the Iranian people will be decided and determined by the Iranian government. All of those held by Iran were charged with espionage and spying, with the Biden administration calling said charges unsubstantiated. The Iranians held by the U.S. were mainly charged with breaking U.S. sanctions. The deal comes only a few days after the U.S., U.K., and Canada imposed more sanctions on Iran ahead of the one-year anniversary of the death of Kurdish-Iranian woman Masa Amini while she was in Iranian custody, triggering mass anti-government protests. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out our facts, and our first spin is a Democratic one from CNN. The Biden administration has freed five innocent Americans, ending their suffering in Iranian prisons. The freedom and well-being of U.S. citizens are paramount to this administration and are worth a high price. Besides, though Republicans may try to spin this as the U.S. giving Iran free money, the unfrozen funds are from legally undertaken oil sales, so the U.S. taxpayer is by no means footing the bill. Also, the U.S. is putting additional sanctions on Tehran regarding the killing of Masa Amini. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. This deal is nothing more than a reward for terrorism. The Iranian regime is one of the most rogue regimes in the world, and Biden just gave Tehran billions in funds that they can now use to threaten U.S. forces and allies in the region. On top of all of this, Biden is enabling Iran to build a nuclear weapon through his misguided diplomacy, which would change the geopolitical fabric of the entire region forever. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 70% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before the year 2041. 
Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso signed the Sahel Security Pact. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Africa Times, Voice of America, Reuters, France 24, and Al Jazeera. Military juntas of Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso signed a security pact on Saturday that binds the three African countries to support each other against threats of armed rebellion or external aggression. The Liptako Gorma Charter Named after the Liptako Gorma region where the Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso borders meet, establishes the Alliance of Sahel States, a combination of military and economic efforts to fight against terrorism in the three countries. The pact terms any attack on the sovereignty and territorial integrity of one or more contracted parties as an aggression against the other parties, which can come to the aid either individually or collectively, including by armed force. This comes after repeated warnings from the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, of which the three countries are members, the African Union and the West, to avoid Sahelan alliances that would erode the influence of these three bodies. The three landlocked Sahel countries struggle to fight al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group militants, and the prospect of a military intervention from the ECOWAS to reverse the recent coup in Niger. Meanwhile, Mali recently saw renewed clashes between government troops and predominantly Tuareg secessionist armed groups, in addition to fighting al-Qaeda-linked jihadists after Bamako called on French troops and the UN mission to leave the country. Scott, thanks for those facts. We begin the round of spins with an establishment critical narrative that's coming from the conversation. This dangerous pact is a reaction to the West's ongoing plunder of the continent's natural resources and the ECOWAS's intrusive plan to use force to, quote, restore constitutional rule in Niger. Both France and the U.S. are responsible for creating significant divisions and heightening regional tensions. All of this could soon cause a full-blown war in the Sahel region. And Al Jazeera responds with a pro-establishment narrative. It would be foolish to call this pact an act of anti-imperialist resistance as the powerful and privileged high-ranking army officers have toppled democratically elected governments to serve their interests. If allowed to go unabated, they will forcefully suppress the voice of the people they claim to represent when it fits their agenda. And the nerds at Metaculus give us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 2% chance that ECOWAS will intervene militarily in Niger before October 1st, 2023. We read a lot of news, Eric, here on this show. It's kind of our job. And uh, I can't help but notice as the weeks and months go by, there's a lot more alliances being formed. And though that can be perceived as a good thing, isn't that what started World War I? Too many alliances? Too many alliances. And things seem to be heating up. The tinderbox is getting, uh, get, getting warm. Yeah. Who's going to light the fire? Not me. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. News coming from Cuba as the G77 summit calls for a new global order. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Xinhua, Nikkei Asia, DW, Reuters, The Herald, and France 24. On Saturday, the two-day group of 77 and China, or G77 plus China, summit concluded in Havana, Cuba, calling for countries of the global south to have a more significant say in the global governance system. At the summit, attended by more than 100 countries, the bloc denounced the current and allegedly, quote, unfair international economic order for developing countries. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel, who currently chairs the bloc, stated that after the era in which the countries of the north quote, organize the world according to its interests, it is now up to the South to change the rules of the game. 
Previously, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who opened the summit, welcomed efforts to support the international status of the global south and called for greater international equality as a basis to tackle climate change and global wealth disparity. Created in 1964, G77 is the largest multilateral coordination organization among developing countries, with over 130 members accounting for more than 80% of the world's population. While not a member, China participates under the G77 and China framework. The Havana Summit comes after the African Union was invited to join the G20 group of the world's leading industrialized nations last week, while the BRICS group of emerging economies was expanded to include six new members in August. Thanks, Eric, for laying out the facts. Global Times brings us the establishment critical narrative. The G77 summit is the most recent reflection of the global balance of power shifting in favor of the countries of the global south. While South-South cooperation is increasing both quantitatively and qualitatively, the West is steadily losing its global influence. The greatest challenge to a more equitable world order is the U.S.'s unilateral efforts to defend its hegemonic position and prevent a multipolar world. However, formats such as the G77 and BRICS show that these efforts can't succeed. Nikkei Asia brings us the pro-establishment narrative. While China emphasizes that it's primarily concerned With a fairer global order and a greater say in the global south within world affairs, it's clear Beijing uses forums such as the G77 to expand its influence in countries in the backyard of the U.S. The G77 is another building block to strengthen China's position in the struggle with Washington for future global leadership. However, it remains to be seen whether the bloc has more in common than mere criticism of the collective West's economic and political dominance. And Metaculus is here again with another nerd narrative. This time they predict there's a 20% chance of war between the U.S. and China before the year 2035. Eric, remember what I was just talking about with these alliances? Well, yeah. Here we go again. So you think in World War III, that's what's simmering in the back. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if I'd put it that way, but yes, indeed I am. Ukraine claims the recapture of another village near Bakhmut. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Guardian, Reuters, TASS, and Al Jazeera. Ukraine said it has recaptured the village of Klishchivka in the Donetsk region, marking what appears to be its second significant advance in a number of days. This comes after Ukraine said it recaptured the neighboring village of Andrivka on Friday. Both villages lie roughly 6 miles or 10 kilometers from the city of Bakhmut, captured by Russia in May after an eight-month battle that's been considered to have been one of the most grueling of the war. In his nightly address on Sunday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said, Today, I would like to particularly commend the soldiers who, step by step, are returning to Ukraine what belongs to it, namely the area of Bakhmut. Singling out the fighters in Klishchivka for their efforts, Zelensky added, Well done. However, in the daily briefing from Russia's defense ministry on Saturday, it disputed Ukraine's account and said fighting was ongoing for control of Andrivka and Klishchivka. It said that Ukrainian forces were unsuccessfully trying to oust Russian troops from the villages. Meanwhile, in a further statement on Monday in which Bakhmut is referred to by its Soviet-era name of Archimovsk, Russia's defense ministry said its forces disrupted Ukrainian attempts at breaking through in that direction alleging that enemy troops were eliminated. Neither Russia nor Ukraine's battlefield reports could be independently confirmed. Scott, thanks for laying out those facts. The first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Ukraine's Kapravda. Ukraine has liberated the village of Klishkivka, a significant development as its terrain will act as a springboard for further advances in the Donetsk direction. 
This allows Ukraine to recapture more of the territory illegally occupied by Russia. And the pro-Russian narrative from TASS, Russian forces continue to repel Ukrainian attacks in the direction of Bakhmut. Claims that Ukraine has recaptured the two villages are unsubstantiated as fighting is still ongoing. And Metaculus is at it again with their nerd narrative. This time they say there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. The Turkish president says that Turkey may part ways with the European Union. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Associated Press, Politico, Fortune, DW, and Reuters. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said on Saturday that Ankara could part ways with the EU after a recent report published by the bloc criticized the country for its alleged democratic shortcomings. Erdogan who made the comments before flying to New York to attend the 78th UN General Assembly, also blamed the EU for, quote, making efforts to sever ties with Turkey. The report, adopted earlier this week, said Turkey's accession process into the EU shouldn't be resumed under the current circumstances, citing human rights violations in the country. The report also cited concerns regarding Turkey's censorship laws, a crackdown on dissent, a lack of independence of the judiciary, and a deterioration of women's rights in reassessing its membership bid. Referring to the report as unfounded and based on disinformation, Turkey's foreign ministry alleged that the EU report took a shallow and non-visionary approach to the country's ties with the EU. The Turkey-EU accession talks have been ongoing since 2005, but the report called for the bloc to explore a, quote, parallel and realistic framework for its ties with Ankara, claiming that the rule of law has deteriorated in recent years. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have Narrative A from The Economist. Erdogan's increasingly autocratic behavior and frivolous geopolitical bargaining are the only reasons for Turkey's stagnant EU accession bid. Only when the democratic backsliding, deterioration of fundamental rights, and the rule of law are stopped, as well as Ankara balancing its geopolitical ambitions with its core economic interests, will relations with the West and the EU improve. We follow that up with Narrative B coming from Foreign Policy. Turkey is a key economic and defense partner for the EU, yet anti-Turkey circles are attempting to bully Ankara by leveling unjust accusations based on prejudice alone. Besides, it's not Ankara's loss. A failure to grant Turkey membership in the EU will only hurt Europe's chance to redefine both itself and its raison d'etre. This is an unfair way to treat a nation that comprises NATO's second-largest army. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they say there's a 13% chance that Turkey will be a member of the European Union by the year 2040. The House GOP releases its short-term budget bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Roll Call, Reuters, Washington Post, USA Today, and ABC News. Over the weekend, the House GOP revealed details of a short-term government funding bill to avoid a government shutdown while cutting funding by 8% to domestic agencies, except for Veterans Affairs and the Pentagon. The legislation, which would fund the government through October 31st, also includes restrictions on immigration and the U.S. border with Mexico. However, the measure lacks the funding the Biden administration requested for Ukraine. Representatives from two of the Republicans' five ideological factions, the Freedom Caucus and the Main Street Caucus, negotiated the deal. The bill will be considered on the House floor this week, along with the fiscal 2024 defense spending bill, which was stopped last week by some conservative detractors. The stopgap bill isn't guaranteed to pass the House, where the Republicans have an extremely thin majority. It's also highly unlikely to pass the Senate, where the Democrats hold the majority. 
The debate over how to prevent a government shutdown comes as Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who last week announced an official impeachment inquiry into President Biden, still faces threats of being removed from his post. Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. It should be the goal of every Republican and every conservative to reduce government spending, increase border security, and eliminate woke from government policies. This bill does it all. If the Senate, led by Democrats, doesn't agree with the provisions in this bill, it will prove that they're out of touch and infatuated with woke government spending to understand what's best for the country. And the New York Times brings us the Democratic narrative. First, a major faction of the GOP held vital Pentagon funding hostage in an attempt to get more spending cuts to unrelated programs. Now they're using a government shutdown as a threat, and their only stopgap solution reinstates Trump-era border restrictions, makes steep cuts, and ignores the president's request for Ukraine aid. This is a bad-faith tactic by extreme conservatives to avoid blame for a shutdown if it occurs. Today's podcast has the Metaculous Prediction community in high gear with their nerd narrative again, saying there's a 50% chance that there will be a U.S. government shutdown before January 1st, 2024. RFK Jr. reissues a call for Secret Service protection after a security incident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, ABC7 Chicago, The Independent, Politico, and Fox 11 Los Angeles. An armed man impersonating a U.S. Marshal was arrested Friday afternoon at a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. campaign event in Los Angeles and taken into custody, according to the LAPD. The LAPD identified the suspect Saturday as Adrian Ispiro. Authorities say the 44-year-old came to the event wearing a U.S. Marshal's service badge and was carrying a fully loaded gun in his holster. Kennedy was speaking at the Wilshire E. Bell Theater for a National Hispanic Heritage Month event, and Ispiro had asked to see the candidate immediately. Subsequent analysis of Ispiro's social media accounts included posts and strong statements in support of former President Donald Trump. Kennedy has reissued his urging for Secret Service protection for his campaign. Ispiro was booked on a felony gun charge and was held on a $35,000 bail. LAPD officer Drake Madison says that the FBI was contacted, but the LAPD would handle the arrest and investigation. The campaign scare reignited questions about Secret Service protection for RFK Jr., whose father and uncle were assassinated in the 1960s. In July, Kennedy asked for the protection, but the Biden administration rejected his request since such protection is only granted to major candidates 120 days before a general election. Kennedy said his campaign filed a 67-page report detailing his unique security situation and need for protection. RFK Jr. claims that he is the first presidential candidate in history to be denied federal protection upon request and hopes that President Biden will allow him Secret Service support. The New York Post brings us the establishment critical narrative. RFK Jr. absolutely deserves Secret Service protection, and Friday's campaign event scare is just another example of how he's at uniquely high risk. The history of the Kennedy family should be enough to warrant this service, but President Biden has refused to grant his Democratic opponent the security he needs. This, when contrasted with the Secret Service protection allowed for Hunter Biden, shows a hypocritical and dangerous hypocrisy by the White House. The pro-establishment narrative comes from CNN. RFK Jr. is asking for special Secret Service protection that's not usually granted during a primary election, and he is claiming that President Biden is denying him security protection is political posturing, 
Kennedy is trying to use his family's history to get protection that no other candidate receives and is spreading dangerous misinformation about the process of receiving Secret Service protection. Scott, what about your Secret Service protection? How's that coming along? It's good. The guys are great. I mean, they're a little noisy in the next room with the foosball, but, you know, they got to blow off some <laughs> steam, too. So it's it's good. <laughs> Texas Attorney General Paxson is acquitted. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Reuters, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, and CBS News. On Saturday, Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was fully acquitted of 16 charges of corruption, bribery, and misconduct following his impeachment trial. Paxton can now be reinstated more than three months after he was suspended from office because the GOP-led Texas House of Representatives voted to impeach him over charges he abused his power. Paxton, who denied the charges throughout the process, said the truth prevailed after the verdict. Previously, a Texas House committee investigation accused Paxton of several crimes, including utilizing the power of his office to help friend and donor Nate Paul, who is a real estate developer in Austin. Paxton's impeachment acquittal comes while he is still facing two first-degree felony charges of securities fraud and a third-degree felony charge of failure to register from 2015. He has pleaded not guilty and postponed the trial while he's serving in office. Scott presented the facts, and here are the spins. We begin with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Democrats, the liberal media, and even left-leaning Republicans conducted a witch hunt based on rumor and innuendo, and they lost. Paxton maintained his innocence throughout this process, and this verdict is vindication against this politically motivated attack. And we have a Democratic narrative as well from MSNBC. Paxton hasn't been vindicated in the case. He's just been saved by Republicans willing to place him above the law because he shares their politics. They use the Trump playbook to characterize his crimes as a witch hunt in the face of overwhelming evidence of guilt. Justice hasn't been served and democracy has been jeopardized. According to a recent study, Antarctic sea ice has surpassed the lowest level in 36 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the National Snow and Ice Data Center, ABP Live, BBC News, The Telegraph, and Earth.com. According to a study published by the National Snow and Ice Data Center, a research institute affiliated with the University of Colorado Boulder, on September 13, 2023, Antarctica's ice sea level is over 1 million square kilometers, or 386,000 square miles, below the previous record low maximum set in 1986. Through the first eight days of September, Antarctica's sea ice grew at a rate of 65,000 square kilometers, or 40,000 square miles, per day. However, growth slowed after September 8, 2023. As no further net growth occurred, the sea ice surrounding Antarctica now reportedly measures less than 17 million square kilometers, or 1.5 million square kilometers less than the September average. With the area of missing ice estimated at five times the size of the British Isles, scientists are warning about the potential ramifications that could be devastating to the regulation of global temperatures. Quote, it's so far outside anything we've seen, it's almost mind-blowing, said Walter Meyer, who monitors sea ice with the center, adding that the sea ice levels may not recover substantially. Since the 1950s, Antarctica's climate patterns have been considerably altered with the continent recording temperature increases of 3.2 degrees Celsius, a rate that's more than triple the global average. Geo News brings us Narrative A, global warming, which has caused record warm oceans and brought significant changes in ocean currents and wind patterns, is to be blamed for Antarctica's vanishing sea ice. A drop in the continent's sea ice levels has repercussions beyond the polar regions. This loss has consequences for Earth's greater climate and global weather events. 
The Guardian gives us Narrative B. This isn't the first time scientists have raised alarms regarding vanishing sea ice levels in Antarctica. The region witnessed similar lows in 2017 and 2022. Besides, as scientists are still trying to figure out the factors that led to this year's low sea ice, it would be too early to jump to conclusions. The El Nino weather phenomenon, currently developing in the Pacific, could be at fault. Spectacular strikes again with this nerd narrative. There's a 50% chance that the Thwaites Eastern Ice Shelf will collapse by January 2029. Our final story, a cyber attack strikes Clorox, disrupting operations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC 12 WJRT, CNBC, The New York Post, CBS, CNN, and Fortune. Some Clorox products are now in short supply after an August cyber attack caused large-scale disruption in the company's production. The company, headquartered in Oakland, California, produces cleaning products like Clorox bleach and Pine Sol and said that it doesn't have a firm estimate for when it will be able to fully resume operations. In a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission filing, Clorox said that on August 14th, it had identified unauthorized activity on some of its information technology systems and has since initiated manual ordering and processing procedures and reduced its production in order to address the situation. While the company now believes that the attack has been contained, it has been unable to get its manufacturing operations back up to full speed. Orders are being processed and fulfilled manually, and it may not be until next week that these processes return to normal. Clorox said that the cyber attack and subsequent delays will hurt its current quarter material financial results, but has hesitated on determining any longer-term impact, saying that doing so would be premature given their ongoing cyber recovery efforts. This shortage also comes as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has projected a potential uptick in the flu, COVID, and the RSV virus this fall. Scott, thanks for those facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from CNBC. Companies often fail to disclose cyber attacks when they happen or hide the full extent of damages in fear of starting current or potential customers, damaging their stock value, or incurring legal challenges. It's important that organizations urgently share when they have been the victim of a complex cyber attack in order to raise public awareness of the impacts. This Clorox shortage, while not at the scale of 2020 COVID-era shortages, is an example of how disruptions can potentially impact daily life. And the GRC eLearning blog brings us Narrative B. While companies in general need to be transparent about their cyber processes and infrastructure, simple human error is to blame for 82% of cyber consequences. Employees are often the people who accidentally expose sensitive information that enables cyber criminals to access a company's systems. Despite the complex impacts on supply chains, simple training of real people on what to click and what to avoid can greatly reduce this issue. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a final nerd narrative of today's podcast, saying there's a 97% chance that an AI system will be reported to have independently gained unauthorized access to another computer system before 2033. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can find out more at verity.news and you can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.